Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The main team. Mega Bears fan. Hello, listeners and viewers. Viewers for our live YouTube segment. I'm the main team. Welcome to Polycast episode 373. And today I'm joined by Mega Bears fan. Everybody overslept this morning. Makalua. And we love all uh, five or six of you that show up on a regular basis in the live stream. And possibly later, maybe Canis Albinus. Let's have to insert cricket noise for now. Yes, Canis may or may not be joining uh, later on. And in this continuing year of ongoing updates from uh, Firaxis that consistently give us uh, topics to talk about every other week, uh, they have released a first look on the Babylon civilization, which uh, we had a little bit of information leaked in, I think, the prior episode, but now we uh, actually know um, how this civilization is going to work. And, oh boy, it <laughs> is a doozy. Eureka. Um, it, it yeah in, in Eureka indeed um, and all the other sieves will be screwed. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, Babylon has a special ability. I'm not going to try to pronounce all these names because I forget how they're pronounced. Uh, in which discovering technology Eurekas does not give you forty percent of the technology. It doesn't give you fifty percent of the technology or sixty percent. It gives you one hundred percent of the research on that technology. You unlock the technologies by uh, triggering their Eureka bonuses. And there's also supposed to be a penalty to per-turn science, but I don't think they said how much that is, so uh, I don't know if if we're talking like a 10% penalty or like a 25% penalty or uh, considering how easy Eurekas are to get in the game, maybe it's a 90% penalty, I don't know. And, and that's really going to be the balance point, right? Like, if it, that penalty is severe enough, then Hammurabi might not be a runaway. Um, but if it isn't, then this is going to be the top science sieve. So it just depends. Unless they also, like, rejiggered how the Eurekas work and, like, made a bunch of the really easy ones, like, not as easy to get. They didn't say anything about that in the first look, so I'm not expecting a change like that. But it's possible that maybe that's a you know going to be a surprise uh, change in the patch. Maybe who knows? <laughs> but um, like the very first thing that popped into my mind was something that I like. I, I do this in a lot of my Civ games to get the uh, machinery Eureka, which is you use a Goji to build three slingers early in the game. You use those slingers to kill you know a random barbarian scout that shows up near your borders, which is going to give you the Eureka for archery, which for Babylon will just research archery for you. Then you quickly pay to upgrade those three slingers to archers, and now you've got the Eureka for machinery, which for Babylon just unlocks machinery, and now you have ancient access to crossbows. 
assuming you can that's afford. That's a good question. Do you need the prereqs before the science is given to you? From the video, uh, it appears not. Uh, and in oh fact, uh, the Chris D and I were discussing this in the um, uh, Polycast uh, chat on uh, Discord, and he pointed out that there is an example in the video of uh, Babylon unlocking uh, mass production without having any of the three prerequisites for mass production. Oh, man. Yeah, now that, <laughs> now that you mentioned that... I, Jesus, okay. So, well, this should be interesting. Right. So I wonder I how long this will last in its present form as it's being... Uh, I have a feeling a few weeks after they let everybody play it for a while and then it's <laughs> going to get a nerf the way Grand Columbia did. Yeah, so I, I kept extrapolating this. I, I spent probably more time uh, yesterday while I was supposed to be working uh, at my job uh, looking at the tech tree and the Eurekas and figuring out other crazy things that Babylon could potentially do. And uh, as a small uh, extension to uh, the machinery thing, if you once you have two crossbows, you unlock the uh, uh, Eureka for metal casting, right? Which for Babylon will unlock the tech and grant you access to bombards, potentially in the ancient era. Now, you would still need niter, and bombards are probably going to be prohibitively expensive to train or upgrade into. Uh, so that might be the big bottleneck for Babylon is whether or not they have the production or money to actually build these advanced units. But the uh, Eureka for military engineering is simply to build an aqueduct, which is also doable in the ancient and classical era, and that reveals niter. So I can easily see a situation in which Babylon, like at the end of the ancient era or early classical era, has access to both niter and bombards. Hmm. It just like from a multiplayer perspective, just the early access to crossbows is probably going to be oppressive. Right, indeed. The bombards yeah. on top of that is uh, pretty brutal. Uh, but yeah, just crossbows. Like you can take if you have experienced crossbows, you can take like sixty strength cities. But you're not going to see sixty strength cities for a long time if you're getting crossbows when everyone else is like. Getting swordsmen. Yeah, the other the other AI cities might not even have walls yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but like 30, 40 strength walls are not going to do anything to uh, concentrated crossbows, despite uh, the penalty. Right, uh, and a few other like notable eurekas that Babylon could potentially get that I found is killing a unit with a spearman. Pretty easy to do, uh, especially with Barbarians enables. Uh, unlocks military tradition, which grants you access to pikemen, which is a non-resource... Uh, you know, medieval melee unit. Pikemen normally suck against contemporary units, but if you're having pikemen and your opponents all just have still ancient and classical eras, the pikemen's probably going to be pretty dang good. Uh, especially if yeah, since and they you can have, get uh, crossbow support. You can get great generals. Uh, th I mean, the first great generals you unlock are your, uh, classical and medieval, so you could boost all these units with uh, your an early run on that, and you get a barracks. I thought that's going to make a big difference in this particular strategy, but that's another aspect of uh, Babylon, is that when you make a specialty district, it gives you the first building immediately. Right, uh, which will help towards the next Eureka that I uh, came across, which is Build 3 Workshops unlocks industrialization. A... <laughs> an industrial-era tech. You could potentially... If you build three cities and put three... Uh, 
industrial hubs in them. The first one will give you a workshop for free, so you only have to hard build two workshops then at that point. You have industrialism, potentially in the you know beginning of the medieval era. Uh, yeah, which is pretty crazy. And that's going to unlock access to coal and power plants and uh, all that stuff. Oh, and then, uh, as I talked about earlier, you can potentially get niter early. If you actually mine a source of niter, that will unlock the rifling Eureka, which will give you access to rangers, potentially, in the ancient or classical era. Again, I don't know if you're going to have enough production or gold to build or upgrade into that. Uh, that might be the big bottleneck, but uh, you, you can get that without even uh, getting skirmishers. The, well, no, um, I, I guess you would have skirmishers because you needed the the two the machinery and crossbows to get there. So the, the districts themselves are uh, classical, at least, so they wouldn't get this ancient. But this is still way earlier than you could normally get it. Right, yeah, uh, but, but, I, but I think the production cost on a lot of these things is <clears throat> what's all, another thing that's going to keep it in check along with the reduced tech weight. Just yeah. Because just you have the tech for riflemen and you know where the niter is doesn't mean you can just insta build a bunch of riflemen. People are going to chop them out though, and. It doesn't take that many units that are like two arrows in front to uh, destabilize the game. Right. Uh, a couple, uh, Two more that I saw. One was kill a unit with a knight, unlocks the military science uh, Eureka, which grants cavalry. So you're looking at potentially having medieval cavalry. And the last one is build two harbors. Easy to do in the ancient classical era. Unlocks cartography and allows crossing oceans and caravels. So eat your heart out, Maori and uh, Norway, because Babylon's going to be sailing across the oceans and colonizing those other continents right there alongside you. <laughs> so and, don't play on Terra so they don't get a fun advantage. But yeah, I expect the, the biggest bottlenecks for Babylon, as I've said a few times, are going to be production and uh, money. If you don't have the production and the economy to actually build this stuff, you could actually screw yourself over royally. Because uh, for units that do not have resource requirements, when you when you unlock the more advanced unit, you cannot build the earlier unit anymore. Which means if you do, you know, get uh, milita military tradition super early because you killed one enemy unit, potentially a barbarian, with a spearman, you can't build spearmen anymore. You have to build pikemen. And if you mine that <clears throat> that one knighter that you find and you unlock rifling and then have access to build rangers, you cannot build scouts or skirmishers anymore. You have to hard build rangers, which at this point in the game with your low production is probably going to take 50 turns. Although those particular examples aren't as bad as people don't generally favor making uh, skirmishers or spearmen in normal games. No, but a ranger in like the medieval era would be a damn powerful unit. Oh, for sure. I'm just saying, like you're in those particular examples, what you're giving up isn't that much of a risk because you're probably not building many of those lower tier units anyway. Whereas, like if if you unlock the upgrade from swordsmen. Too early. Well, that's a problem now. Well, or, or even probably want some. Or even crossbows, right? If you do get that machinery Eureka too early, you lose access to being able to build archers, right? And if you can only afford to upgrade <sighs> one crossbowman, I mean that's going to be good. But you know that guy still could be focus fired to death, and now you can't build or yeah. train any more archers, and it's going to be really expensive to train more crossbows. 
I, the, the crossbows aren't that bad. You could probably chop some of them out. Perhaps, but again, once you do that, you don't have any more forest left to chop. So again, if you if you do lose That's that fine. unit, like, replacing it is going to be very uh, expensive. Well, sure, but if you're rolling up on people with like four crossbows and a great general, like there's no way they're killing that stuff with uh, classical stuff in, earlier. Well, highly unlikely. But Some if, if you unique can... units might be able to, but like normally, no. But if you can only afford like one crossbow, right? Then it is going to be vulnerable. Yeah. And if you lose, well, you just it, like, put it in the city or your encampment, and then they can't do crap to that crossbow. Like that crossbow will be killing something like all the time. Yeah, they won't be able to hit it. Right. True. And uh, your your city strength is the crossbows aren't the, the strongest things in melee, but your city strength is still going to be fine uh, with this route. Right, uh, and then the other uh, big economic hang-up is going to be district cost scaling, uh, because those the cost of districts scale up with uh, your progress through the tech and civic tree. So if you're getting a crap ton of advanced technology, I don't know if the cost of the technologies affects it, I think it's just the number of technologies, but in any case, if you're jumping ahead and getting a bunch of advanced technologies from one, two, or three eras ahead because of these Eurekas, the cost of districts is going to start scaling up pretty high for Babylon, and it might suddenly become uh, very difficult and expensive to get some of these districts out. That was the thing I was thinking when you are talking about putting in the three workshops. The production cost, even if you chopped it out, might be kind of prohibitive. Yeah, but those cities then have some production at that point. True. It's not like you're not improving your outputs. True, but building things like commercial hubs to get uh, trade routes and you know if encampment or uh, entertainment uh, complexes if you need the amenity, uh, those you know could become problematic because those are not boosting your production. And aside from the one um, governor that allows you to do so, you cannot buy districts. So, uh, yeah, in the case of the, the workshops and the industrial complexes, you know, you're, you're going to boost your production alongside, which will offset that penalty. But for other districts, uh, it might be difficult to get those out um, affordably if you're not really careful and responsible about how and when you trigger Eurekas. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how people play this as a peaceful civilization. But if you're using this to go to war, a lot of these problems take care of themselves because... Uh... You get whatever your opponents have. Yeah, I don't have to build uh, commercial hubs if I can just conquer them from someone else. And it doesn't matter if I chop down all the forests. There's more forests over there by them. Well, chopping is meta anyway. So uh, it's not uh, like you're chopping into whatever's most valuable. And then the uh, the free... Uh, yeah, the other bonus that they get, which we've alluded to, is... Uh, and I think this is now Hammurabi's uh, leader bonus, is the first time they build a uh, district of a specific type, uh, they get the level one building in that district for free, which means the first time you build a, a holy site, you're going to get the shrine for free, which means Babylon's also going to have a pretty good uh, leg up in terms of founding a uh, early religion. What do you get when you make the encampment, actually? I would imagine it's a barracks, but... Oh, yeah, that's... I Well, I think they specifically said it's the lowest cost building that is available so do the stable and barracks have different costs i think the barracks is like a little bit cheaper I, I, that's not something i know offhand so i would yeah. assume you would get the barracks 
And then for non-specialty districts such as aqueducts and neighborhoods and uh, dams and so, so forth, uh, the first time you build a district of that type, you get an envoy, uh, which means Babylon is also going to be competing for uh, suzerain uh, status for uh, some of the better city-states in the game. Because what the AI really needed was more envoys to dump like 20 in one city. Yeah. Well, now if you're Babylon, you can hopefully compete with that. And then they have a water mill replacement building and a, I assume, a spearman replacement unit. Uh, I don't think they clarified what uh, what it replaces, but it's an anti-cav a unit with bon- uh, bonus towards anti-cav uh, properties. So, Speaking uh, of AI, how good is the AI at getting uh, Eurekas? Because I'm under the impression that it doesn't particularly gun for them. So this might actually be a relatively ineffectual AI sim, even though it's potentially quite good in player hands. Yeah, that's another thing, too, is I don't know if uh, Fraxis is making changes to how the AIs pursue Eurekas. Because if they don't, then, yeah, uh, Babylon is probably going to actually fall behind in science because they're going to get a penalty. I I don't know how big that penalty is going to be, but, um, yeah, an AI-controlled Babylon could be, like, just totally incompetent. We won't know until we play. surprise me. Yeah, we'll see. But I, I have a feeling like this could see a ban pretty fast in multiplayer and such. Potentially, yeah. So the uh, the water unless mill... it works very differently from how it's looking like it'll work. Right. Yeah. Like I said, maybe if if they changed some of the Eurekas, so you know you cannot get in fact get bombards and niter in the classical era. Uh, I don't know. Um, but it looks like their building and unit are relatively meh. So the the water mill building uh, gives you two production and a housing. It does not give you the plus one food that the regular water mill does. Uh, it also does not give you the plus one food on um, uh, farmable resources. It instead gives plus one food on all fresh water tiles. And I, I was a little bit unclear about whether that means land tiles adjacent to fresh water or like the actual water tiles, which would mean you only get plus one production on lakes and oases. So I don't know if it's tiles adjacent to rivers and lakes, or if it's the lakes and oases themselves that give you the the plus one food. Based on the way I read it, I thought it would be the tiles adjacent rather than the water provinces themselves, the water tiles themselves. uh, That was my assumption as well, but it was not entirely clear, at least not to me. I don't know if they showed like a uh, if there was a clip in the video that maybe would have answered that or not, I didn't watch. I mean, it that fresh way. waters had that meaning of uh, being adjacent to a freshwater source uh, for a long time in Civ. And if they meant lakes, I would imagine it would have been easier for them to just say lakes. Yeah, I'm assuming that that's the case, but it's not just lakes. It would also be oases, and there's some natural wonders that are freshwater sources. So, uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I'm assuming that what you are saying is is the way that it works, but I was not 100% sure. So uh, potentially this water mill might actually give you less food than the regular water mill, depending on... I, I think it's still a good trade, though, because of the housing. You're usually gated on housing rather than food. And you're getting a bonus production, which is nice. Uh, yeah, well, so trading food for production, as long as you're not food-starved, is not is pretty solid. So yeah, if you're if you're on like a coastal city that's adjacent to like one river tile, right, <laughs> or one you know river that instantly just <laughs> drains into the the coast, uh, you're getting one food from this uh, 
building. So, uh, yeah, not not super great in that case. But if you're along like a snaky river, uh, you're potentially getting like five, six, maybe ten or more food total. Probably not because yeah. you're probably not going to work those. Yeah, but this makes sense, especially when you talk about the snaky rivers and stuff like that, because actual Babylon in the Fertile Crescent. Now that I think about that, that kind of makes sense for it to work like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, And then, yeah, they've got a better Spearman unit. Uh, I think it said it's a plus 17 bonus against cavalry units instead of plus 10. I don't know if their base strength (laughs) is higher. And uh, the other benefits that they get is they have three movement and three sight, which means that it will actually be like a decent, you know, scouting and reconnaissance unit. And you might actually be able to, like, chase down some of those enemy cavalry units uh, in order to surround and kill them. Which is one of the big problems with the anti-cav unit line is that they just can't keep up with the, uh, the cavalry units. Yeah. So yeah, it'll suck to be weak against melee, but having a, a unit like that with extra movement might be worth anyway. At least, like, at least one of them for the scouting would be useful. Yeah, uh, station them along enemy borders and, you know, get an extra tile of observation on their unit movements and stuff like that until they, you know, yell at you to move your troops from their border. Just passing through. Right, Exactly. Uh, and they'll probably be good as barbarian hunters with the uh, extra movement, though you might want to bring, like, two or three of them along so that, because, uh, uh, yeah, they, I don't know if they're going to be effective at killing barbarian spearmen if they don't have any other combat bonuses against melee units. But they'll certainly get to those barbarian outposts quickly. And they'll be able to catch up with, uh, keep up with the barbarian scouts. Uh, so if the yeah. scout shows up at your borders, this unit will actually be able to, like, move along with it and potentially catch up to it and kill it before it gets back to the outpost. The usual screening strategy will be a little easier. Yeah, true. But again, like, what's going to be weird is you might only ever be able to build one of these because you build one and then you use it to kill a barbarian unit and then suddenly you've unlocked pikemen. So, (laughs) uh, this might be the least used uh, unique unit in the entire game. Assuming that these Eurekas haven't changed or that there's something about how Babylon's uh, unique ability works that we are not privy to. Although you'll probably build more of them then if you're anticipating being able to upgrade them into pikes super early. Yeah, you'd want to like just pop out, you know, adopt the policy that gives you the bonus towards them and just pop out a bunch of them real quick and then deploy them into the field once you have a number of them. Don't just build one and then, but uh, if if you're on the defensive, then yeah, that's going to be a problem because you're going to build one and you're going to need to use it right away and then suddenly you're not going to be able to build more because you are stuck having to build pikemen. Now, the video didn't say anything about um, inspirations, did it? And applying on that side of things? It specifically talked about technology and Eurekas. So I'm assuming that they do not get civics for free. That's interesting. So they're still going to have to develop culture, you know, normally like any other civ. She still have to research to get this around and pound more easily. But even the first look video, like, talked about some crazy, powerful strategies with Babylon. Like, for instance, they talked about building the Great Library, which gives you the Eureka for every ancient and classical technology. 
<laughs> instant tech tree fill out. So, yeah, you just instantly get catapulted into the medieval era. And then on top of that, you get the a Eureka every time another Civ gets a great scientist. Uh, All right, so who's going to get salty in the, the weekend games when they, they're playing as Babylon and someone else rushes this out? Oh, Beats them by one turn. play Babylon, oh no. <laughs> yeah, the, the Great Library might be the best wonder for a specific Civ in the game now uh, for Babylon. It's like when you see... Yeah, it's like when you see those tier lists and normally the Great Library is a few years tier down, but with Babylon, it's S tier. It's like yep. S plus <laughs> plus. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm struggling to think of another wonder that is as good for any specific civilization as the Great Library is for Babylon. Yeah, I don't think any, there's anything with that level of uh, Dan would love this synergy uh, in uh, Subsistory. <laughs> the closest I can think of would be maybe the pyramids for China. Uh, but like, it, even that. Not, yeah. I mean that's a thing, but it's not. <laughs> it's not giving you all the classical uh, text, right? And, and the thing Good. is, the Great Library is giving all this stuff to Babylon for free, right? Like with the pyramids well, you and have China. To build the wonder that is a cost. It's just well, way well, undercosted right. compared right. to what you're but, getting. But uh, compared to, like, say, the Great Pyramids with China, you still have to build all those builders to get all those extra charges. You know, uh, so there's a continual. Yeah, you, investment. And you're comparing hammers to science there, and, and you can make a comparison in value between those. But you're just getting so much more science, most likely. Right, but aside from the wonder itself, Babylon hammers. does not have to make any continued investment uh, to continue reaping the rewards from this, whereas other civs typically do have to make continued investment to get benefits from uh, wonders. Yeah, although to be fair, you are probably not going to stop making builders then, uh, very soon with if you're making pyramids as China. No. You're, you're probably still getting value out of that for a long time. It's just not as much value. Yeah, all right. I, I'm not saying there was no value, just I, I still don't, like, you know, if, if the pyramids, or uh, again, if the Great Library for Babylon is like an S++, then the pyramids for China is maybe just like an S+. Yeah. And then, yeah, what else do we got? Uh, they also talk about, like, you can get Eurekas from spies and from level 2 research alliances. So, yeah, if you're playing against Babylon, do not let them have a level two research alliance. Go ahead and do the level one because that uh, just gives you straight research yield, which will be nerfed for Babylon. So you, you get disproportionate reward from that. But uh, once that gets up to level two, cancel it or do not renew it because you don't want to be giving Babylon even more free Eurekas than they are going to be getting on them on their own. Unless it's a struggle bus AI, in which case it's probably fine. Yeah, if, if Babylon does in yeah. fact suck as an AI and they're falling behind because that research penalty is really high, again, we don't know how high it's going to be, then yeah, I, I guess it's fine. And you also get lots of uh, Eurekas from great scientists, so... Um, yeah, I, the, the, the res it might not even matter how how bad the research penalty is. Like... Babylon, I can easily foresee Babylon getting pretty almost every tech in the game just from Eurekas. Yeah, maybe. Like, if someone beats you to Great Library, though, like, it's not trivial to get every Eureka. And there are, some of them are normally inconvenient to the point where you would hard tech anyway. Yeah, that's and true. But those ones you might get from uh, goody huts or scientists or 
you know, research agreements. So, like, eventually, if you have everything else, that stuff's just going to get backfilled by something later on down the line anyway. Yeah. Although, if you haven't invested much in direct science, then that could take a long time, depending. Perhaps, yeah. We it, we won't know until we've, you know, played with the sieve. And, uh, yeah, I feel like uh, user versus user play is going to be very different from user versus uh, AI play. Well, that's true anyway, to be fair. Yeah. Right, but, like, Babylon especially so. Game primary target. AI Babylon, uh, I can get to you later. Because we also haven't seen really in practice whether Babylon's going to have a peacemaking disposition or a warlike one. You know, are they going to come after you with the tech advantage of this? Because they're going to go, wee tech. Yeah, who knows? We don't know how their AI is going to play either. I don't even know if the, did the video say what their agenda was? I think I saw a tweet from Ed Beach, uh, like the day after the video came out, where he did say what the agenda was, but I forgot what it is. <laughs> so check, nice. check Ed Beach's Twitter if you're curious what uh, Hammurabi's leader agenda is. Science funding? He has not been aggressive in previous civs. I don't know if that's useful for this one, though. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was thinking that, but I was, you know, it's been a while since I've Babylon's been into, you know, play with. So, let's see. So, moving on from Babylon, the other news we got this week is uh, they talked about, I think, a new game mode as well, uh, something to do with. Uh, mythological heroes. I did not see much about this. I don't think either of you two yeah. did either. So no. the only thing I really saw about that was the video that Potato McWhiskey did, where he's looked at a few of them and looked at their stats and the thing, or, uh, the things they can do. And there's a I should have I should have written down myself some notes about that. But there was one in yeah. We're gonna we have to have a time when I watch the video fresh in my head. But there are some ones on there that look like they could be really overpowered. But it's but they're heroes. They're supposed to be, and it's interesting because you you can you have them when the you you get them initially and you use them up, but you can buy them back again with faith. I think is how it works. So it's like resummoning them in a sense. And once you've gotten a hero uh, in yourself, like if you picked Hercules, you're the only one who ever gets Hercules. You know, so it's like it eliminates that from the pool of heroes the way it eliminates a great person. But then you can like re a reusable great person, maybe, is a way to look at it. So would you say it's maybe kind of like a halfway in between a great person and a governor, maybe? Where the governor can be like kicked oh. out of a city, but then, you know, you just wait a few turns no, and you get them back? No, no, no. They're, well, in a, in a sense like that, yes, but it's a literal physical unit that goes around and some do not have attacks. They have bonuses to like armies or cities effects that you want to use, but they're not uh, combat units. On the, on the other hand, some of them are because I think there is. I think they showed in the video literally King Arthur. There's also Beowulf. Beowulf, nice. Yeah. So it it looks like an interesting mode to play with. You know, it give you spice up things a little bit. I wonder if yeah. they have any of the uh, existing leaders, like, as um, hero characters in the game, where they appear if that leader does not show up in the game. Like, you know, for example, someone like Gilgamesh. Oh. Yeah, I don't think they said on that one. That could be cool. 
Although probably not, because I, I I think Civ Five did that with city states, where they had some city states that were cities of civilizations, and if that civilization wasn't in the game, then it allowed that city state to appear in the game. But I don't think mm-hmm. Civ Six does that with city states. I think whenever they've yeah. added a civilization who previously had been represented by a city state, they remove that city state from the game and replace it with a different city state that has a different suzerain bonus. I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because we know they've taken Babylon off the list, basically, because now they're a sieve. Right. And I'm not going to go into a new game that doesn't have Babylon, and suddenly Babylon's a city-state again. Right, and I kind of wish they, they would have kept that in, because uh, I, I thought that was kind of a, a neat little feature, uh, added a little bit more variety to the game uh, in the case of Civ Five. So I was disappointed that they stopped doing that in Civ Six. So I would not expect them to do that with the heroes, but who knows, maybe. Well, if they're willing to bring out Beowulf, I don't think they'll be short on potential heroes if no, they're, they also they're going to that extent. Mytho- mythological type sources. Yeah. I'm not thinking there are many modern or later heroes. I think these are like... I don't oh, know. You got like Paul Bunyan, I guess. <laughs> Johnny Appleseed. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Just pulling from the American repertoire. <laughs> Maybe maybe you have a, a hero unit that just goes around the map planting apples and <laughs> as a bonus resource. I don't know. <laughs> There's one guy I'm thinking of right now. I can't remember the name of the particular hero unit, but it was supposed to be adding... It's Maui. He adds resources on your... Completely new resources onto a tile. I think you have to do it... You may have to do it outside your borders, but then you could do it right next to the border of a city you just found in. Oh, suddenly they have a luxury. I don't think you control what it is, but he puts down luxury and bonus resources. Or just take the settler along with Maui and <laughs> plop yeah. the resource, then immediately <laughs> settled on the same turn. Yeah. Interesting. I forgot about that one, but I just remembered that. Yeah, so there's, there's some very interesting not combat uses for them. So. All right, cool. Well, I'm glad one of us at least watched the video and uh, <laughs> knows what the heck's going on <laughs> here. I put it in the Discord. It's like, guys, look at this. Yeah, I, I think I, I saw the uh, the first look for it, but I've generally been pretty dismissive of the new game modes so far, so I, I kind of mm. only half pay attention to them. I still haven't even gotten around to playing the Pirates one. I actually do want to play that one, because that one looks like it might be fun. Yeah, it's a, that, the Pirates was a fun way to get in a quick little bit of civish type stuff if you didn't have time to do like a full game or something. I do like that you can technically still get cities in that, even though you're not supposed to. Yeah, assuming they don't fix that and patch that out. Yeah. Patch out what the autoclicker can do, thanks. <laughs> it's amazing how in these strategy games, the autoclicker somehow finds its way into so many exploits. You can do some pretty crazy stuff with that in EU4 as well. Yeah, these they've developed- tried to patch it out, but there's still things you can do on occasion. These developers should probably just have like a dedicated Q- QA person with an auto-clicker, <laughs> who, uh, <laughs> whose whole job is just to look for auto-clicker exploits. <laughs> Maybe they don't want to open that can of worms. <laughs> I don't know. So, did either of you two see anything else about uh, Babylon or the heroes that uh, is worth talking about, considering that we haven't actually been able to play with either of them yet? Uh, oh, by the way, when does this... Uh, does anyone recall when this patch releases? Probably next week. 
if they follow the patterns, usually the week after or very close. Although it might not. It might be off a week because American Thanksgiving. Yeah, usually I think they've, they've been releasing them on Thursdays, right? Yeah. Uh, I think we're still two weeks from Thanksgiving, aren't we? Uh, oh, yes. I yes. believe so, yeah. Good grief. This year, it both speeds up and slows down when you least expect it. I know it's not next week. Well, as of this recording, anyway, it's not next week. Yeah, it better not be, because uh, <laughs> I'm not ready for that yet. Nope. So, yeah, so I, I, I'm guessing we'll probably it's probably coming out on Thursday. Uh, which which would be, what, the 20... 19th? The 2019th. 2019th. Which would be the 19th? Wait, I'll pop Maybe. up the calendar. Yes, it's the 19th. I mean, that is next Thursday, but... Yeah, we'll see when they actually drop it. Well, if you want to talk about uh, very fine details in the game, uh, there was a... <laughs> this username is... <laughs> <laughs> it's a bunch of H's. But anyway, he had post over in Sif Fanatics. Uh, the thread is titled, Are you aware that tribal villages tend to appear on several lines from northwest to southeast? And I was like, wait a minute. And, you know, there's a demonstration map here. You know, it's not an exact line, but within a certain line, they're like maybe a couple of tiles off on each side. But it distributes that way. Yeah, it looks and an that, awful lot like a statistical regression line. Yeah, and you know, just even off the top of my head, when I've had bigger maps and continents, I have seen that kind of a pattern where one will be offset, you know, just... It'll be a decent amount of tiles apart, but it is... You could draw a diagonal line through. I just thought it was an odd thing that it was just those ones on the big maps, but... It's not just a... Where did this come from originally? Linear congruential generator. Yeah, they didn't... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, actually, they're forwarding something that was found by the Chinese Civ community, Civ playing community, which is interesting. But... I'm wondering if the... There's a lot of math. If the reason for this is because maybe the space in between is, like, where they're putting all of the Civ and city-state start locations... I think there was some speculation later on in the thread is that, yeah, that there's a similar placement lining thing for the Civ, for civs and city-states. Yeah, I, I know a few posts in Victoria showed up and started talking about uh, barbarian camps. Apparently, uh, Victoria misread the title and thought they were talking about camps instead of tribal huts, <laughs> but, but found that apparently on a dual uh map, the um, barbarian encampments spawn exactly seven tiles from the start location of the players. Which <laughs> explains why I keep seeing those scouts on, like, turn three. Yeah. That does make sense. They're always just a certain distance from the player. But maybe also, uh, and these may not be on a line. Go further down in here. So, yeah, apparently the uh, the strategy then for finding more goody huts is going to be to find one and then just go uh, north, northwest and southeast uh-huh. from there. And uh, that's where all the others will be. Just kind of zigzag back and forth, I guess, because they, they are off by like a few tiles. 
But from the screenshot, it doesn't look like... It looks like they're all within about three or four tiles from that line. I see, like, maybe one or two outliers. Yeah, and that just might be the distance that it picked. But then, yeah, if you look at the space in between, there's no tribal villages. Do we have more sampling data on this? I know several people in the thread were asking for more sampling data. Because, yeah, it, it could just be that this person found a just a crazy coincidence. Like, for whatever reason, the random number generator, you know, happened to favor those locations. I don't know how many tests they did. Yeah, because, like, you could, I mean, you could skip that if you knew for sure what algorithm uh, Firaxis is using. Uh, well, but I don't I, know that we have confirmation of that either. I think somebody you don't did have confirmation. Yeah, they dug into it and found it was a specific type of a... Okay, all right. It's post number 12, posted by user Kwame, that links to a Wikipedia article about linear congruential generators, uh, which I do not know anything about because it's been, like, 15 years since I've taken a statistics class, and we did not cover those in the statistics class that I took. So uh, I don't know exactly how that works, but there's a Wikipedia article about it. I don't know if either you two read it. I see Kwame's post, but where do we see that we know that this is the Varaxis is what they're actually using? I, I think Kwame is speculating that that's what they're using. I don't I don't know if anyone's actually gone into the code, because I don't think we have the source code yet, because Varaxis has said in the past they're not going to release it for Civ 6, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, the original poster had gone in and did some trial runs of random calls that pointed, I think pointed more towards that one, even though it's not a hundred percent certain it's that specific. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how much of the map generations is being done in the C plus plus code versus in like the scripting. So if if it's in the scripting, then we can probably see a lot more of what's going on. But if it's in the backend C plus plus, then we can't see much of it. And then, uh, HHHHH said a few posts later that uh, that user thinks that Fraxis is using an LCG, yeah, which is the uh, linear congruential generator. So yeah, both of them are speculating that that is the algorithm that is being used. Couldn't you just set the algorithm so that you get more of a spread from these lines? <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, yeah, possibly. We Like we were saying, since there's that blank spot in the middle, we don't know if the, they did it in such a way that it puts a distribution over the map, then puts the players and city-states close to that distribution on a different kind of a grid. Or maybe, yeah, they, I just, guess. Or maybe they tested this on like, like small and standard-sized maps when they developed the game and didn't do much testing on the larger maps. So they thought, oh, they're spaced out enough on the smaller maps, so they're probably fine on the bigger maps, too. And uh, it just didn't work out that way. Oh, that's true. And Frax, this is a long history of questionable scaling when it comes to changing settings. So that, right. yeah. <laughs> and if most of them... We still have issues with game speed settings even now, even though they've had a few passes at that. Right, yeah. So if all of their QA and playtesters and stuff like that are playing, you know, quick games on small maps, uh, then, you know, it would make sense that they might not necessarily have caught this uh, internally. Yeah, and I, I can easily see, like, if you double the number of lines here or something, just as an example, the uh, this becomes a lot less meaningful in, in terms of its predictability. Personally, I think the way that it should probably work is that they should, you know, both barbarians and goody huts should probably spawn uh, close to water, fresh water. 
So if anything, I would think they would follow like rivers and stuff like that. But apparently that is not the case. I could see that, but uh, I, I could also understand why they wouldn't do that just from a balance perspective. Uh, because yes. fresh water is already a desirable thing, so further skewing in favor of people who happen to spawn near it might not be the best. Yeah, and the whole point of them is to reward exploration, including exploring into that giant, inhospitable-looking desert. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not the Arctic apparently, because <laughs> there are goody huts pretty far <laughs> north and well, south. Especially considering that the Arctic regions on Civ maps are disproportionately large, because the uh, map is a cylinder instead of a globe. There is a yeah. lot of Arctic tundra to uh, explore in these games. Yeah, it's always funny when you get that one tile island or one hex island that's trapped in the ice and they're literally at the top of the map or bottom of the map and you're like, is that literally the North and South Pole? Which, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's Santa's workshop, of course, which you can't get to until global <laughs> warming happens. I mean, if you can survive there in Ramworld, why not in Civ? Yeah, good luck surviving in Aishita's tribal in Rimworld. You can do it if you're, like, one of the most knowledgeable players in the game. <laughs> Maybe. Sometimes you can pull it off. No, it was a short thread, but it was interesting to see that there is somewhat of a pattern, and then people got into the math. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me to see an update on this, just to make it a little bit less predictable, now that this, that this is known. But I doubt we'll be seeing that anytime soon, probably. Not this patch, at least. Yeah, because there's no telling if they mess with that, what else it could bork up. Yeah. It's kind of, if it ain't broke, broke, don't fix it. And again, it yeah, might... this is not this is not something high priority, in my mind, no. at least. And again, it might only be a problem on the larger maps, because if, this, if those lines are closer together on the smaller maps, then there's not going to be as big of a space in between. Yeah, you would, you would not even be able to recognize in-game which line you're on if they're close enough to each other, or if there's enough lines, so to speak. But interesting for now. You go northwest mm -hmm. to southeast. Okay. All right, so uh, next thread. AIs not conquering each other kills this game for me. By uh, Krajan. I don't know. It's not like it never happens, right? But it's true that the AI is not very effectual at conquering each other. I feel like that's been a problem. I don't know about a problem. That might not be... That's too strong a word. That's kind of been a thing since the introduction of one unit per tile. That, like, the AI still conquers each other, but not to the frequency or threatening extent that it used to with stacks. I yeah, think they're it, really they're really great about starting wars and taking off a city or two or something like that, but they don't get don't always get the kind of follow through that a human player would. My experience with the Civ Six has been that uh, this would probably and to, to be clear though I, I don't I don't have as much of a problem with this as the the posters on this thread do. So either I'm not seeing it or it's just not bothering me as much because I like you know pacifist building gameplay. Uh, but anyway, the, the two big problems with Civ Six's design that I see with this is, one, uh, walls, which we'll get to later, and this thread eventually does degrade into complaining about walls, which uh, we talk about on this show a lot. <laughs> but the second one is that I found from my personal experience playing the game that the uh, AIs basically stop building new units after, like, the classical or medieval era. 
And if they lose those units in early wars, they rarely, if ever, bother to replace them. So the AIs will fight these early wars, and then they throw all of their units at enemy walls, uh, which then promptly destroy those units because the AI is very bad at sieging cities and walls are overpowered, which we'll get to later, I'm sure. Uh, and then they just don't have any units left. So they don't do anything for the rest of the game because they are too. They don't have enough combat strength to even bother declaring the war to begin with relative to the other civs. And even if they did, they can't do anything once the war starts because they don't have any of those units. And part of the problem, as uh, I think Phil was alluding to with the one um, unit per tile rule set, is that because of one unit per tile, units in Civ 5 and Civ 6 are much more expensive than they were in Civ 4. Well, also you get less force multiplier. Uh, if you have one nation that's prepared more than the other, you can only send so many units uh, at the enemy at a given tech level, no matter what. So you can't just overwhelm somebody with numbers. And that was one of the AI's go-tos, because it, <laughs> it doesn't do tactical movement very well, but it can do, let's concentrate all of our stuff here and just destroy the, the defenders the AI much more easily. To build a doom stack and roll it through your territory. Yeah, the AI yeah, is... And even if that was bad play in Civ 4, it was still threatening to other AI and threatening to unprepared players. And of course, in Civ 4, if you did not have a sizable garrison in that city, the enemy army would literally just walk in and uh, take it because the yeah, cities with did no not... losses even. Yeah, the cities yeah. did not defend themselves. And to me, that is the bigger criticism, even more so than walls in general. It's just the defender is given huge advantages in Civ 5 and Civ 6. Yep. Just, like, it's kind of crazy how little investment you need to defend yourself versus attacking yourself. And some people claim that that makes the game harder, but in practice, not really, because most of the fighting losses, everything is AI versus AI. And most of the threat of the game comes from either an AI running away or an AI winning before you can get into a position to win or prevent it winning. And one of the most common ways an AI runs away is if it conquers somebody else and gets all that extra output. Uh, since that is less likely, you are also less likely to get a threatening runaway AI. And yeah, a lot of that does come down to the relative advantages defenders get versus attackers, because it's not something the AI is likely to overcome, since the AI is at a pretty equal skill to the AI. It happens, but it's not common. Yeah, one of the... Uh, someone in the thread, I, I forget which poster it was and what post number it was, uh, but I saw it while I was skimming through it last night, uh, commented on um, how Civ Six does not have much in the way of mechanics that uh, disincentivize uh, or punish uh, really wide play. Or, you know, lots of conquest. You know, you don't have, like, the global happiness. You don't have um, civilizations, like, splintering and fractioning into civil wars, uh, you know, because they're being poorly managed or, or whatnot. Uh, so, aside from loyalty, which is, you know, easily uh, dealt with as long as you're, you know, building up your population and not, you know, overextending too much... Uh, there, there's not much that's stopping someone from just steamrolling over uh, other civilizations, which means that you are more likely to get that runaway unless Firaxis made the AIs a little bit more passive. I think that threat of the runaway is useful, though. Yeah, I don't know if it, it, if it depends on uh, 
uh, whether or not Firaxis saw that as desirable. Did they want there to be one or two large AI runaways, or did they want all of the civs to kind of stay in the game longer when they were programming the AI? I don't know what that design goal was. Yeah, I don't either. I, I do think there needs to be at least some risk of losing at a player's skill level. Now, you can adjust that with difficulty to some degree. So, like, you can always, given the game's rule set, you can always increase the AI's strength or decrease it within some limits, right? Like, if you're good enough to win reliably on Deity, there's not a whole lot you can do to make it harder other than self-imposed challenges or mods. Uh, but if you're not quite there yet, then at least you could turn up the difficulty uh, to increase the AI's likelihood of uh, challenging you, either by winning first or using military threat. Yeah, unless you're like me and you just do not enjoy all of the extra front-loaded uh, annoyances. Yeah, that's true. And it, it, it's also true that DD in Civ Six does not tech or produce units at anywhere near comparable uh, values to even Civ Five, let alone Civ Four. Right. Like I said, if the if the AIs are getting all their units killed early in the game and then aren't replacing those units later on in the game, then it doesn't matter what difficulty setting you're on. As long as you can get through their city walls, uh, you're going to yeah. have an easy time conquering them. No matter yeah, how late game are. you can, even if you're an error behind in the late game, you can take out walls. Yeah, with enough units. Well, just with artillery and balloons. Like, they, well, yeah. they, they can't shoot back. And, and eventually you get very experienced units yeah, that get put into armies. And that is more than enough to beat stuff in air in front. Because uh, the AI does not reliably make cores and armies. And it certainly doesn't control them well tactically. So if you have a couple armies boosted by, like a couple artillery armies boosted by a great general, you can pretty much delete a unit or two every turn. Even if it's like mech infantry and stuff like <laughs> right and as you said with the artillery and especially with the balloon you're attacking from outside the range of the city which means if the other civ does not have units they literally cannot do anything to stop you from just walking in and taking that city yeah and you have so much speed in the light game that even standard infantry units can very trivially move from outside the city's range and hit the city and take it yeah and definitely fences are down and definitely a tank or a helicopter if you've got those yeah, but like, yeah, like Great General plus the um, the policy guard for moving when you start in your own territory, which counts even cities you just conquered. Uh, the following turn, you'll still get that. Right. Uh, it's very easy to have uh, four or five movement on standard infantry. And because of the way roads and railroads work in the late game uh, with the movements, uh, it's very easy, very, very easy to get even standard melee units into cities from outside the range. Like consistently, and I think the aggression from the area also gets influenced by the agendas they pick up. Because yeah. some of them will make them want to go to war, but some of them make them want to make peace. And we—it's not like we had the traits in Civ Four and stuff, so you could kind of tell who would go to war more likely than not. But it's not quite the same here. I, I mean, with—I mean, the usual suspects like you expect Monty to go to, you expect Shaka. But you don't necessarily. Ex- but they can also play a peaceful game. It just depends. 
Well, and even with Montezuma and Shaka, like I still see the same trend that I pointed out earlier holding, which is one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to overwhelm the opponent and then become a runaway, or they're going to get smacked back and then be completely out of the game for the rest of the game because they lost all their military units and then don't build any more. Yeah, because I've seen that multiplayer with the AIs because I can go in and attack them. And then you, even if I only get a couple of cities out of it, it's enough of a blow to them and then they don't build back their military. Like I'll see it still sitting in the double digit and I've already built back, you know, like they'll still be sitting at like 90 something, which is not many units really. It's that could just be a handful of scouts or something. Yeah. After early game, that's nothing. Yeah. And then I'm up at like three or 400 coming back in and it's like, and they're dead because the, even if you give them the full 20 turns, I replaced the few things I lost, but they they could be doing this. Well, to be fair, the AI does not know I'm about to come back to get them. So they go back to normal AI business, which is do 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 improve my city. But you kind of think having an aggressive neighbor would make you build more units. I... Even then, though, like I think even more so than the AI's unit production, which could be increased if both AIs are increasing production, they're not going to beat each other because of how favored the defender is in Civ 6. It is city walls, but it isn't just walls. It's the walls plus encampment combo firing. It's the massive vision advantage that the defender has. It's the uh, the, the mobility advantage, because it's much easier to use roads and that type of infrastructure as the defender than the attacker. And, and it's the, the ability to position units that can hit the enemy that can't be hit back until they, they best the city, which has units blocking it. It, right. It's very difficult against equal skill tech to do anything as the attacker. And there's also the uh, the bottleneck of uh, just not being able to get all of your units to the front line where they can do something because of one unit per yeah. tile and terrain restrictions. Yeah, at any moment, even with relatively friendly terrain, the defender is going to have a pretty hefty advantage in the total number of units that can hit the attacker versus vice versa. Um on top of the the city and the encampment each getting a ranged attack of their own, the number of defending units capable of attacking is going to be greater. Yeah, I, I think I, I want to say I want to give Firaxis the benefit of the doubt and say that perhaps one of their um, uh, thought part of their thought process for the way that they designed walls and the defensibility of cities was the hopes that if cities were very defensible it would push more of the combat out of the cities and into the open field where you'd be having, you know, you'd, you'd skirmish along the borders to take care of each other's militaries, and then you would come in and siege the cities. But I don't think un- so, though, because there's no incentive for that, right? Well, like, what I was I'm say sure is, that's not lost on them. Right, well, what I was going to say is, is there's just not enough space between cities to do that, right? Because uh, Even the if AI- there were, if you're the defender, why would you go out there? Yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah, I'm going to sit in here with my encampment and my walls and have Victor in the city. So I've got the double attack and then I have a couple of crossbows in there that have double attack. And oh, what army was that again? Because literally this has happened multiplayer game where I got surprise declared. I got the walls up fast enough and I had, I mean, they weren't originally promoted crossbows, but got out the two crossbows and they got, they earned all their promotions off killing off the invading army. Right. And historically, you know, what would happen you know, based on my understanding, I'm not an expert historian here, especially not on military tactics, but from my understanding of, like, actual history, what armies would do is they would come into the countryside and they would start, you know, pillaging. 
you know, capturing yeah. little villages and towns and monasteries and, you know, pillaging farms and stuff like that. And what that would do is it would force the defenders out of the cities to come and confront them in the field so that, you know, they stop harassing the population. But, you know, Civ has never really, like, done that. Like, yes, you can go in and pillage, but once you've pillaged the tile, it's pillaged, right? There's no more damage that you can do there. There's no, like, additional penalty for camping your unit on the pillaged farm. So yeah, there's... You can, you can surround I, you can... a city and siege it, but our Civ cities have an infinite food and water supply. Even, even if yeah. all the tiles around it are blocked up, we're still not going to completely starve down. And I don't think you can make a historical model because of that. Because in history, the most common way a fortification would fall would be them running out of supplies. And mm -hmm. actually, a lot of the pillaging, so quote-unquote, in history was just the army trying to get enough resources to sustain itself. itself in hostile territory <laughs> yeah, so that it could maintain a siege. Well, true. So, yeah, the, the, the goal of the invading army was not necessarily to damage the opponent's infrastructure. It was to feed and sustain themselves. But the net effect of that is that the defender would either have to come out and confront them in the field in order to stop them from doing that because it is destructive to their economy, or they, you know, camp out in the city walls and potentially get starved out. Normally, the, the, the defenders of a city or castle would surrender if they could not uh, hold out long enough. Because if you're in a castle like that, you're either trying to buy time for it to become winter or something, so the attackers physically can't stay there any longer. So if you have more supplies, you can hold out that way. Or you're waiting for a relief army. So those your, your castle is there mainly to give your relatively smaller force time for for relief, so that you don't just get immediately run over. None of which is modeled in in civilization like at all. Like maybe and it in can't be. You're advancing forty years per turn. There's a lot happening on the scale of Civ every time you advance a turn. So even if it's like two years or something, like you had sieges that lasted more than a few years in real life, but they were pretty exceptional. That's not something you routinely had. So it would be very difficult to model historical sieges in the context of a Civ game, especially because the way this works changes throughout the eras, right? Like, you can't really have the same mechanics for a World War II scenario as you did for, you know, a high medieval scenario when it comes to fortifications against attacking armies. Those are very different uh, military scenarios. So, yeah, yeah I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and when you get the, you can model this kind of thing as something like, because you play Hearts of Iron, and it's a it's a, a focus on a small period in history, and you're sometimes going day by day. Then you can model this stuff out, but Civ is far more abstracted. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hard so, problem yeah, I, to solve. I think the best you can do is have the offense-defense balance be something where defending yourself takes more of an investment. Yeah, and I've said that all along. And walls are a part of that equation, but they are only a part of that equation. There, there's more to it than just the walls thing. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that it should that you defenders should need to have garrison units. Like the cities, I, I'm okay with the cities having a bombardment, you know, to slow down the advancing uh, army. But if you don't put a garrison yeah, a in that city, y it should fall easily. Yeah, I, I do think it, right now, yeah, for sure, having having to invest in an army to defend yourself is something that was required historically, and that certainly could be modeled in the game. It was modeled in previous civs, and I, I'm okay, like you said, with the defender having some kind of advantage. In fact, that's even preferable because then you need to make a significant risk to attack somebody successfully. With that being said, 
it, it's way too trivial to defend yourself right now, and that is reflected in the AI's ineffectual attacks on each other as well. And that makes it easy for the player to defend himself as well. Like, there's no, uh, there's no real threat because you need so little. Yeah, in order to capture cities to in Civ Six, you have to plan out what you're going. You have to have a plan of attack, right? And then you have to execute on that plan of attack. And that's the thing where the AI just totally falls on its face. Is they are very bad at managing. Uh, you know, they're bad at tactical movement in general, but specifically in terms of city sieges, they're even worse. Yeah, and, and you just need so little resources uh, invested to defend a full-on AI attack on a city. It's like two melee units to screw up their ability to surround the city, and like two range units to get four shots on them a turn, and you're, you're probably good. Like That's going to stop nearly every attack by the AI. Right, and like nearly every game. Feels like sometimes the AI is just like, pick random city, Throw entire wad of army at that. What? I lost? <laughs> right. And if you're building your cities really close together, you know, like three or four tiles apart, and then putting encampments yeah. in between them, like any attempt by the enemy to surround and actually formally put that city under siege by Civ Six's game rules is going to result in those units getting uh, bombarded by, you know, two, three, maybe even four uh, uh, cities or, or districts. <laughs> And like cavalry, cavalry raids into enemy territory is like completely futile because the cities are so close together and there's so many bombards. You go in and you know, like it, it, get, being able to get into their territory to do something like pillage a strategic resource is exceedingly difficult yeah. because you're just not going to survive long enough to do it. Yes, yeah, so you always know that's a sacrificial unit, and that is a complete break uh, from historical considerations where defensive fortifications rarely. Uh, could put any shots on meaningful shots on the attackers. Like it, it when almost, under siege. It almost makes me feel like there should be some kind of mechanic where defenses and fortifications, like in the core of the civilization, should like decay or become less effectual over time because they're not being used. So that once you, if you do punch through the outer line of defenses and fortifications. You're you can do things like pillage and raid, you know, their interior countryside unless they actually come out with units to come get you. I, I think you could get by just reducing the range of <laughs> of the city of environment or taking away the city of environment. I don't think the game needs those. I don't think it ever needed those, even in Civ Five. Yeah, I would be okay with city walls only having one range. Yeah, or like, none. I would be okay with them having none. Like they're they're plenty strong. They're strong enough to be worth building. Without oh, just that. just hold off enemy melee units. Yeah, and and if you garrison it with uh, range units or whatever, it's still threatening. Like you still need more attack than you still need more attackers than there are defenders to succeed. Because walls have a lot of hit points. The city has a lot of hit points. If you can't put the city under siege, so then it's not sure people to take it. Uh, especially if they also have a melee unit or two nearby. Like, but then you actually need units nearby. And you you need something to stop the opponent from simply moving units in and pillaging rather than attacking the city, and so on. It, it's it's a lot more similar, even though it's not a perfect model. It's more similar to actual historical considerations, and it, it actually forces you to invest if you want to defend yourself, rather than very trivially holding off attacks. You have to actually position some troops to successfully do it. Now, to Civ Six's credit, though, I do want to say that I like how they have the different levels of walls and the different eras so that you actually mm -hmm. are supposed to 
reinvest in your city defenses over time. Of course, the problem <laughs> is that the ancient walls are generally strong enough that you don't have to do that. Yeah, and the the city's strength scaling with units rather than your uh, defensive upgrades is also something that makes the ancient walls sufficient. Yeah, I, I think it would have been better if they would have had like um, buildings that you build uh, in the wall, you know, kind of like you have the districts, then you have the buildings. Like you, you build the wall, and then you build like watchtowers and ramparts and, uh, you know, boiling oil pots or whatever that each have different effects and maybe they're mutually exclusive. So you actually, you know, choose and specialize how this particular city defends itself. But I don't know, maybe that's getting too detailed and granular. And you could just have defensive upgrades uh, in place of, like, or in addition to walls. You don't need to go into too much detail. You could just, like, the next investment increases the strength of your ranged attack or whatever from the city and have those be fixed. Have those not dependent on the, the highest strength of your melee unit, but rather on how much you have built up that particular city is how much damage it's doing. Yeah, maybe have like a, a city project or something that takes like, you know, not too long, maybe like three turns or so to do that like boosts your walls by like 20 strength or something like that. But then it like decays over time. Like it lasts for like 20 turns or something like that. So if you anticipate a war is coming or the army is marching towards your city, you build that real quick, but then it also decays so that you eventually have to reinvest in it for future wars. Sort of like preparing for hurricanes. They only go and sandbag at areas when they're pretty sure it's going to hit, but they can't leave the sandbags up there all the time because they'll literally fall apart. Yeah, I mean, you have permanent structures like levees and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that uh, that you can do. But, we're as... talk- but what you're talking about is more like the sand. Yeah, right, kind of right, thing. yeah. Yeah, it could work. I don't know that we need it, but it would be nice. I, I think right now it just boils down to the attacker versus defensive balance is skewed towards the defender. And that's why we're seeing this outcome. Now, maybe the devs are fine with that. and Maybe most players are fine with that. Yeah, probably. I mean, how many players actually play, you know, matches of Civ through to completion? You know, where where they actually care about winning. Well, <laughs> that's a different can of worms. <laughs> it, it, it's not. It's not a lot. Like that's. It's probably a minority of the player base. Like I'm sure there's. You know, that's a- true. But I think that part of the problem is that is a design flaw of Civ, right? Like it stops being interesting of four X before it's over. Yeah. Well. Yes and no. There are Forex games that tend to end relatively quickly uh, by the time that they stop being interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's and that is something of a lost art, but that, that is something Forex can accomplish. It's just not easy to accomplish it. Right. But yeah, like something like the Council Victory in uh, Master of Orion, uh, especially on high difficulties. So getting something like that, by the time you can, like the game is still not in hand necessarily. So clearly, yeah. Phil wants the Apostolic Palace back. That's what you're saying. <laughs> Man, this this feels like I just made like a, a solid political policy argument, and I just got like slapped by like you hate children or something in response. <laughs> no, I do not want the Apostolic Palace back. At least not in its Civ Four form. <laughs> You can bring it back. You don't have to make it the same wonder. <laughs> the Great Lighthouse isn't what it used to be, but it's still in the game. That's okay. <laughs> now, 
Anything else in the thread that uh, you think is interesting or worth discussing? I don't know that I want to single something out at this stage of the discussion on it, but uh, do you see anything? No, nothing specific other than just, hey, I wish, like, Vazels were back. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a little different of a topic, but that'd be cool, yeah. <laughs> Instead of completely killing off the guy, why can't they be our vassals? No peace vassals, though, please. Just, just oh, God, capitulation. Yeah, no, that one. <laughs> uh... I would probably rather see the Apostolic Palace back than peace vassals. <laughs> and that's saying a lot. <laughs> Uh, there is one post, uh, it's currently the last post from a user, uh, Quegg, Q-U-U-E-G, that says, uh, people should stop slobbering over the DLC that they pump out, uh, and, uh, that, uh, AI is tough to implement and they should, you know, basically put more investment into that. Uh, to that, I do want to say that the New Frontiers patches, I think, have all come with AI improvements, and I think, uh, some of the early ones actually were noticeable substantial ai improvements so it is not the case that they are completely neglecting improvements to core gameplay in order to pump out the dlc they are doing both maybe you can still argue that the um split between the two is not where you would like it to be uh but um you know to their credit they're the ai has been getting better yeah gradually if anything's being neglected it's the ui but i mean i'm not gonna get started on that again at this point Oh, you need it. We need an eighty dollar expansion for that. <laughs> I don't know that they can do it. Yeah, it UI with would be tough because uh, yeah, a lot of like, things we need. You need like there there are people out there who can do it, but I don't know that they have somebody on staff, and that's true for a lot of game companies, not just for Axis. Well, there's also the the big uh, issue of the the game is also on consoles, so. Uh, you know, you can design. Sure, a, but a that, really... that doesn't preclude console-specific things and uh, PC-specific inputs. True, you can very it's... easily. But it is that much options. more work. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, if you're going to bring it to consoles, then you should make it a seamless experience in console. If you're going to put it on PC, then your UI should make it relatively seamless to play it on PC. And that's not really true in either case. And that's just like the UI has been an area of neglect in since really since after Civ Four. It even had some problems in Civ Four, but it was pretty good in Civ Four uh, compared to most other strategy games. Yeah, Civ Four was probably the peak of a uh, Civ UI. Still not perfect, but as good as it got. Yeah, I, I think it's unquestionably the best UI in any Civ, and that it's not even close. How much better it was than Civ Five or Six. But it's not like this is a lost art. It's just that most most games I've played in the last 10 years or so, they, they don't seem to have people on staff who are knowledgeable in making UI that is both clear and concise and minimizes the number of player inputs to accomplish things. There are people out there who could do it, but it's not emphasized in hiring or putting people on the project, from what I see. And to uh, Quegg's point, uh, yes, it is an unfortunate reality of, of modern video games that uh, there is more emphasis put on charging the users or the players for new content, which means you have to make new content that's worth charging for, which means a lot of the, the back-end, you know, UI, AI, you know, quality-of-life stuff 
is just not prioritized. And that's not Firaxis's fault. You know, if anybody, that's, you know, the, the publisher's fault because they want to, you know, push this per, these perpetual growth models. Uh, but it does mean that in these regards, uh, the games do suffer. And that, unfortunately, is, is just kind of a reality of the industry right now, unless you, you know, go into uh, indie. And, uh, w- which is why I-, I was very happy to see EA publish Star Wars Squadrons, which was like a middleware game, right, that didn't have any microtransaction economy at all. Like, we need more games like that, right? The middleweight, middle-shelf games that uh, are designed to be good games first and not just vehicles for, you know, charging microtransactions and perpetual DLC, I think the market itself, as like as an us as consumers, also like we we set the floor in terms of how bad these things can be, and uh, I'm often frustrated by what other players are happy with. But yeah. then, like somebody is going to have, be the lowest common denominator, no matter what. Like you know, if if overnight everyone else's standards improved, then I would be the person who's you know. So I don't want to point fingers too much, but I am disappointed at the the levels that some people are willing to accept, especially when it comes to being nickel and dimed in other uh, game genres. Yeah, uh, I know a large part of the uh, the industry uh, regarding like microtransactions is geared towards the quote unquote whales. Which are the you know hand, relative handful of players that spend hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars on microtransactions and DLC on the game, even though a majority of consumers maybe never even spend a penny on microtransactions, it's still lucrative for the publisher to put those in because of those relative few whales that do put all that money in. You know, if you can sell one copy of the game for a thousand dollars, that's better than selling it to a 999 people you know or well sorry not i screwed up on my math there but you get the idea now one thing that could change the ai script in gaming is if this uh if, if the ai learning stuff becomes less expensive slash difficult uh, to implement and then we start seeing stuff like alpha star but not every game at that point, the AI is too good rather than too bad on a dime. And that'll be interesting, because I think that's something we'll see in our lifetimes. Give it like 10, 20 years, I would not be surprised if uh, projects like Alpha Star are more common. And nobody listening to this can beat Alpha Star, even if it has no bonuses, by the way. Even if it's restricted in its actions per minute, nobody listening to this can be Alpha Star as of right now. <laughs> So yeah, in principle, you could put that kind of thing into a Civ game if you did enough, if you could simulate enough games and make AIs with no bonuses that could just absolutely smack just about everybody who plays. Yeah, homework for our listeners. Uh, go look up what Alpha Star is. Right, uh, I should at least mention that. That is a, an AI designed for StarCraft that can easily beat Master, Grandmaster, and professional players. Despite being limited to seeing what the computer, or to being seeing what what, what their units can see, despite and being limited, limited in to... actions per minute to fewer actions per minute than many of the top pros can manage, so it's being restrained to essentially playing at the level of a human in terms of inputs and information, and still outplaying actual human beings, <sighs> like the top actual human beings in the world. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's impress- impressive. Having a good AI that is good while still following the game rules and the uh, boundaries that are imposed on the players is uh, always an impressive feat. Every once in a while, like somebody would cheese it out because I've been watching some games uh, cast because they they were put it, they put it on the European ladder so that they played it against regular players, not just top pros too. But most of the time, the AI won, and you would have to do very specific slash unusual things to beat it. And even then, people failed when trying to like cannon rush it and stuff. Sometimes, sometimes they could pull it off. But you're not a much margin for error. Yeah, it's a very, very impressive project. And in, there's nothing in principle uh, that would stop that from being used in a Civ game. It's just that you would need <laughs> a lot of resources to the point where it's not cost-effective right now. Well, the, the, yeah, the big hang-up would be uh, dealing with the division between you know the micro-tactics of Civ and the macro-economy, you know, economy, empire-building stuff. I mean, that's the thing in StarCraft, too. The, it's in a smaller scale, uh, but then the micro is less intensive in Civ than it is in StarCraft. But, like, if you run enough <laughs> enough iterations of this AI so it can train against itself, it's going to have very effective macro. In fact, you would, you would probably see things that the players think are cheating or think that has bonuses. Because it would be making performances similar to what deity players could do without bonuses. Like, there's nothing in principle that would stop an AI from making the same choices uh, in terms of empire building and planning that a human could do. And in Civ 4, there were humans who were getting liberalism by 200 AD pretty routinely. Most people wouldn't think that's possible unless they're like on the forums or they're very good players themselves. And yet there are people out there doing that. And certainly an AI who can analyze the information available and is making literally optimized choices based on hundreds of thousands or millions of iterations or whatever could very easily manage that type of thing as well. So now you're, you're fighting against 1,000 AD tanks in Sephora, uh or earlier against an AI with no bonuses. How many people could beat that? I would say very few people would ever win a game like that. And then you would need player bonuses to compensate rather than AI bonuses. Yeah, well, in the future, when we all have our NASA supercomputers, maybe we can have games with that level of AI. You don't even need supercomputers. You just need to have this AI built. Uh, and then you, you ship it, the game with the agents. I don't think this stuff is too far away technologically. I mean, it's it's cost prohibitive right now, but I'm not convinced that in like 10, 20 years, it's still going to be cost prohibitive any longer. I don't know. I'm not an AI programmer, so I do not know. Yeah, we'll see. But certainly, we uh, we, this might be one of those times where we get what we wish for and then <laughs> might not be happy with the results eventually. <laughs> And the AI is much better than any human could be. <laughs> yes, 10 years from now, Phil will be getting onto Polycast and complaining that the game is too hard and the UI is too good. <sighs> well, I will never complain that the UI is too good. <laughs> just, <laughs> don't think I have a, there, are, there, are, there are decent ones, but not necessarily just like amazing. AI maybe, UI never. I will never do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, not until we have, like, I challenge. I challenge every developer out there. Prove me wrong. Do it. Not until we Make have me like think a UI is too good. 
Yeah, maybe if we had like direct brain interfaces, then then maybe. So like, what's but, the downside of a too good UI? Like, come on. That even if it's good, sometimes people don't look in the right places to read it, as I've seen in streams many times over the past couple of weeks. I mean, you're always going to get user error, but yeah. But this is like, uh... there is a prompt telling them what to do with the object right down here in the corner, and it's like they're blind to anything that isn't in that narrow center zone. Yeah. I mean, you could have a difference in opinion as to what constitutes a good UI as well, in some that's regards. That's true. Your good eye and my good UI are probably not the same thing. Well, that's, that's true for everyone to some degree, I bet. However, there are some things that are just objectively better than not, like having fewer inputs to accomplish the same task available. Like, There's no downside in allowing hotkeys, even if not everyone uses the hotkeys. Like, The presence of the hotkeys doesn't make the game worse. Yeah, my uh, 10-year-old kid was playing Dark Souls on the Switch last night, and uh, it was pretty funny, because uh, I always thought that uh, Dark Souls, the first Dark Souls anyway, had pretty good play conditioning in its uh, early tutorial with all the messages and, and stuff like that. But uh, she's just, like, walking past them and, like, not even reading them. I don't know if she doesn't see them or what the deal is. And then I'd, she'd be like, I don't know where to go. And I'm like, well, you just go through that, that hallway right there. And she's like, what hallway? And she's just walking around in circles, not well, not seeing okay. the doorway to the hallway. And I'm just that's like, oh, not, my goodness. That's, <laughs> so, that's not the UI. She just may not be one of the people who's good with spatial awareness. Yeah, probably not. Well, she's young, too. And that's yeah. a little bit... I think she's a little bit outside the original target audience for that game. Yeah, uh, she didn't do herself any favors, though, by not uh, increasing the gamma uh, enough, because uh, it, it looked. Oh, yeah. it also looked pretty dark on our TV, and I told her to make it brighter, and, like, she didn't want to, so I'm just like, all right, well, whatever. Uh, but, yeah, um, <laughs> even with the, uh, even with the best, uh, best UI and best play conditioning, there's still going to be user error. <laughs> <laughs> not to say that Dark Souls... You're of that Cuphead developer. Or not developer, the, the playtester for Cuphead. Yeah, not to say that Dark Souls has, you know, perfect UI and perfect play conditioning. It doesn't. But like I said, I always thought it was pretty good until I saw my uh, my kid try to play it. <laughs> yeah, it's all relative. I don't know. Though. Like, young kids, they're not there yet. <laughs> like, there's a reason they're, they're still young. Like we pick up on new control schemes and things just because we've been exposed to so many control schemes over the years that we kind of have a expectation in the way they develop feeds into that expectation. If you look at nineties games, there's like, I don't know how many different ways to give you the, your front, when things are blah, blah, to go front, left, right, back, that kind of thing. I mean, it's been standardized to WASD, but that's not what it was for a long time. It could be the other side of the keyboard. It could be the arrow keys. It could be on the number pad. It was originally the arrow keys. I lived through that era after all, as did yeah. you. And we, we, we played awful. those games. It was awful. Uh-huh. <laughs> it depends on the game. Even back then, there's some... I, I think some of the good UIs from the 90s are more impressive than today because the conventions were less so. And they, because of the limited resources, they had to be really uh, selective with how they implemented some of these things. That's why I still compliment games like Warlords 2, made in the early 90s. Excellent UI for the time, and it's still good UI by most of today's standards. And that's uh, that's close to 30 years ago now. <laughs> kind of don't want to admit that, but whatever. Like A lot of the stuff isn't new, conceptually. They just don't put it in the new game sometimes for whatever reason. But some modern games do. Some modern games have great UI. It's not common, but it happens. 
Yeah, it's probably, you know, a lot more the case of a publisher giving a strict deadline, you know, so you got to follow the convention so you can put it in as quickly as possible so that you can make those deadlines and release the game on time, even though it probably could have used another three to six months of uh, tuning and balancing and playtesting. But again, yeah. that's that's just the state of the, the modern industry is it's a, you know, big, uh, big business corporations are doing all this stuff now. I also think that yeah, most companies, they might be correct in this, they don't invest in the expertise for UI compared to other things. Well, you look at like comp- they get somebody who can do it, but they don't like they don't prioritize it. Certainly not to the degree of graphics. Well, you look at a, a, even, a publisher like EA that'll like you know buy out you know a smaller studio that you know made like a hit niche game like you know Visceral Studios did with uh, Dead Space, and then they they just run them through a meat grinder, right? Like they you know, take all their creative ideas and uh, make them just make sequel after sequel after sequel. And, oh, it has to have multiplayer. And now it has to have microtransactions and all this stuff. And, and, and then eventually they make a flop and then they just close down the studio or alternatively, uh, you know, they, they hire a bunch of people to develop a game, you know, to go through crunch and then the game releases and they lay everybody off. So I, don't, I hope none of that sort of stuff is happening at Firaxis, but, you know, I know that a lot of the big publishers do those sorts of things, and it's a, you know, damn shame. And it, uh, uh, I know from having worked at a large corporation where, you know, we had a, 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 a merger with another company and there were new layoffs happening like every six months over the course of two years, it is hard to work when you feel like you have the sort of Damocles hanging over your head, right, the entire time. It is stressful, and it really does you know, hurt your, your creativity and your, uh, your output. Yeah, I can certainly see it. But we should probably wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is half polycast, half gaming chat cast, but that's okay. And thank you for listening to polycast episode 373, right? Right. Uh, I have been one of your regular co-hosts, Mega Bears fan, along with Makalua. I think I need to find more caffeine. My brain is starting to go day. The me and team. Setting up sieges at all distances. And I hope everybody took our advice last time and uh, voted. And oh dang it, now it's time for the copyright stuff that none of us ever bothers to remember for when Canis isn't here. Uh, Civ 3, 4, 5, and 6 sound clips, copyright, take 2, interactive, copyright, the polycast at thepolycast.net. Yeah, that sounded good, right? Better than I could do.